Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, Candeo Church. Uh, If I was to give a theme for Psalm 115, uh, it would be this. And it's it's interesting because this word itself doesn't actually appear in this text, but the theme would be God is holy. And that's why we've been singing about that so much this morning. And when we say that God is holy, like the definition I love using the most, it just makes it abundantly simple. Since I'm not a very smart person, I need simple things. Uh, so I always go, God is holy. Holy means like he's, he's different. Like fundamentally the word holy means he's different. If you say that that's a holy building or that's a holy bowl or something like that, what you're saying is that building, that bowl, they're just different than everything else around it. We're talking about God and we're saying that God is holy. It just means that he is different. He is without rival, and there is nothing, no one, no thing that is even close to him. He's different. And so it's often dangerous to kind of paint with a broad brush, but what I'm about to say this morning to start us off, I I say with absolute confidence, not a doubt in my mind, that no matter who you are or what your starting point is this morning, your biggest problem is not that you think too big of God, that you have too big of a view of who God is, but your problem is, and is always going to be, that you have too small a view of God. Or another way to put it, it'll just never be big enough. And here's why this matters. If your view of God is small, then it means everything else will be small with it. Your confidence in the midst of trials will be small. Your hatred for sin, as God makes it evident to you, will be small. If God is small for you, even your understanding of of grace, that God bridged the gap between his holiness and your brokenness with Jesus is small. Even your affections and your ability to keep your affections focused on God alone will be small. But if things start to move a better direction, if, if, if you start even just like making small steps into having a bigger view of God, what happens then is your confidence and your strength grows. Your hatred for your sin and brokenness over your sin grows. Your love for Jesus and grace purchased for you on the cross grows. And your ability to keep your affections fixed on God grows. And so what Psalm 115 labors for, for us, and this is why we need this psalm, okay? We need this psalm because the psalm is trying to capture your heart with a bigger God. Wherever you came in today, this psalm is laboring for you to have a bigger view of who God is. And so that will be my goal for the next 32 minutes and 12 seconds. And when God gets bigger for us, it brings a thousand other gifts. So let's start in verse one here. Psalm 115 verse one says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory because of your faithful love and because of your truth, okay? If you're thinking about getting a tattoo, you wanna buy a coffee mug, you wanna write something on your shoes, I'm just gonna stop right here and give it to you, okay? Take a pen out and underline Psalm 115.1. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory. Like if you want a mantra for life, that's it. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory. What is so incredibly wrong for you and us to do is so incredibly right for God to do. 
Like if you go out of this room today and you walk around the world spending all of your energy trying to just draw attention to yourself and say, hey, everybody, look at me. Look at me. I'm special. That would be wrong for you to do. Here's where this is different. This is where you and I are different than God. Because what's wrong for us is incredibly right for God. Here's what I mean. If there was somebody in this room who was infinitely beautiful, infinitely valuable, infinitely satisfying, the most loving thing for you to do would be to stand on your chair right now and look at everybody else and say, hey, look at me, everybody, look at me. Anybody wanna do that? All right, no brave souls, I get that. But there's nobody in the room like that. There's one being in the universe like that. And in order for him to be loving, he must labor for our affections, for his glory, to draw our attention and say, hey, everybody, look at me, look at me, look at me. The psalmist is pleading for God to make himself famous, to be all about his own glory. Now, here's something. I, I've known about Psalm 115.1 for years. I've loved this passage for years. I actually learned something a couple weeks ago that I, I, didn't, I didn't know, and it's this. I, I didn't know that Psalm 115.1 is actually the prayer of a broken heart. It's a prayer of lament. I had never connected verse 1 with verse 2. Just read verse 2 with me. Why should the nation say, where is their God? You put those two together, you begin to understand this, this situation that's unfolding that something is happening in the psalmist's life and in God's people's lives that's not good. And what's happening is the nations around them are seeing what's going on in their life, that things are not going particularly well for them, and they're throwing out the taunt, right? Like, go back to verse 1. Hey, if your God is true, like, if, if your God exists and he's so loving, where is he? Right? Clearly, if your God is the true God, and he is so loving, this wouldn't be happening in your life, right? This is when this psalm becomes incredibly relevant for us, doesn't it? Have you ever been in a moment in life where you've sat, looked at your circumstances, and asked, where is God in this? Or maybe you didn't ask it, but have you ever heard anybody else around you say that to you? Oh, if God's if he exists, if he's so powerful, then why is this happening? And if you've never had either one of those experiences, I guarantee it'll happen to you soon. Two of the most difficult days of my life as a pastor have been days where I've stood at this spot on the stage. There were small, not adult-sized caskets in front of the stage, and there were devastated parents. And that was the question hanging in the room. Where is God? And so what the psalmist is pleading for here in verse one, is he's saying, God, act, but not for my benefit. Do something, but not for me. Do it for yourself. Bring glory to yourself. And this is where we transition in this psalm from this, this prayer to this question to this context into the answer, okay? Verse three is the response to the question, where is God? Where is their God? This is the answer. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. 
I want to pause again here. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. You can't find a verse that more simply summarizes the sovereign power of God than this. Like I'm asking you, like sincerely, if you were trying to describe somebody who had infinite power and authority, how would you do it? Isn't this it? Like don't we as humans even measure power and authority based on your ability to do what you want? Like we get this, okay, parents, stick with me here. I just turned 38 about a week and a half ago That may surprise you that I'm that old. Some of you are like, wow, you are really old. So like, I I understand I'm in this perfect middle spot. So I just turned 38 years old. I have a car and more than $20 in my bank account. This is the life I dreamed of since I was six years old. Because what this means is, I can at any moment jump in my car, drive to the local ice cream shop and get myself two scoops of cookie dough ice cream and a waffle cone. I can do that at any moment. In fact, I could do that before dinner or after dinner. I can spoil my supper if I want to. I I can do this twice a day. This is the life that I have. It is incredible. I am an adult now. I can do whatever I want. And you know what this is like, parents? Like, you, you can do this. This is a perk of being an adult. And then when your kids look at you and they say, well, how come I can't do that? Parents, again, you know the answer to this. You look at them and say, hey, when you're older, you can take your car and go do whatever you want. And they're so mad, right? This is the the perk of being an adult. You can do whatever you want. Well, kind of. So here's the thing. If I go to Hanson's Dairy, two scoops, scoop skis, four queens, Cedar City Creamery, Right, we, we, can, we can banter all day long about who's got the best ice cream. The problem is, I can do whatever I want. I can go there, I can get ice cream whenever I want, but I cannot demand that it's free. They won't do that. I tried this before, but they won't let you do this either. They won't let you lick the scooper. Like, that's weird that they won't let me do that. So I don't have that power. So I'm pretty powerful, but I can't do that. Guys, I, I, I also realize Uh, I can't even make sure that they have my favorite flavor on hand before I get there. Like, I don't have that power either. The number of times I've gone to Scoopskis and been like, seriously? I'm not eating Superman. It ain't happening. I can't even, guys, I can't even, like, make sure that as matter, like, if I eat all this ice cream, that I'm going to be able to, like, preserve my dreams of having a six-pack. Like, I I have all this authority, and yet the same time I don't have very much, right? But notice here, in contrast to me and my authority, my ability to do what I want, there's no qualifier for God. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. There's no like kind of, it's just an absolute statement. When the psalmist writes here that our God is in heaven, do not fall into this ditch of thinking that that means that God is distant or disengaged, that like, oh, he's just in heaven. He could care less about me. That's not what he's getting at at all. What he's trying to highlight here is our God is in heaven. Let's just pause there because yes, while this question is floating around and these taunts are flying around of, well, where is God? Know that God in that moment, he's not panicking. He's not fearful. He's not feeling backed into a corner. He's not back at the the whiteboard trying to find plan B, like he's not in any of those spots because our God, regardless of all these taunts, 
is still sitting unshakably on his throne. No matter what's going on, or what's happening at this level, God is on the throne, unshakable, now and forever. And he does whatever he pleases, which means that it may even please him to let you as his child suffer for a while, knowing he's working that out for a better, more beautiful future for you. Church, we need to take comfort that our God loves pursuing his glory and our good, and those two things are not at odds with each other. And so the psalm now moves from lament and this response into this comparison of God versus the gods of this world. Jump in with verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. And they cannot make sounds with their throats. And those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. I don't know if you've ever seen idol worship. But these words begin to take on like new meaning for you when you, you see it like firsthand. I remember a number of years back reading this psalm when I was spending a summer in Thailand and seeing just images like this on a regular basis. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats, and those who make them are just like them, as are those who trust in them. One particular experience that I had that summer living in Thailand was uh, uh, we spent an afternoon at a, like a Buddhist statue museum. And I can't even like put into words like the emotions that I felt that day. That was like a combination of like grief and brokenness with confusion and frustration, you know, because I'm, I'm walking through a museum of like broken down, retired Buddhist statues. And it, it hit me in that moment. It's like the same guy that, works in that factory and he, he made that idol and then he, then he painted it and then he wrapped it in plastic. You saw that picture. He wraps it in plastic. He puts it in the back of his truck, hauls it down to the street corner, puts it in its place, backs up, takes the truck, goes back to his factory, clocks out, then goes home, grabs his family and goes back to that same street corner and teaches his children how to pray and worship that idol. And then, after the course of time, the, the paint will begin to flake off, the metal will begin to corrode, and he will then go back, pick up that statue, replace it with a different one, and take this old one that's now retired and put it in a museum someplace. Like, I, I, 
I mean, how could you? I, I mean, can't you see? But here's the thing, though. I got on a plane after that summer, came back to the States, and what was wild is once I began to see idol worship, I couldn't stop seeing it. Like, I couldn't stop seeing the fact that, like, people are constantly taking created things and worshiping it, centering their lives around created things rather than the creator. And that's not just a Thailand issue. That's an American issue. That's an everywhere issue. You come back to the States, you begin to see it everywhere. One example, Jake brought this up in our elder meeting. He says, guys, look at verses four through eight. Everything said there is also true of a dollar bill. And so maybe our worship looks different. Our idols look a bit different, but it's definite idolatry. It's all around us. Our natural drift is to take our eyes off the creator and to put them on created things. And hear this, guys. Go back to verse 8. That's a warning there for us. That those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Understand this. This is a fundamental principle of life you will become what you worship. And so if what you worship is fragile, it's breakable, powerless, temporary, lifeless, useless, you will be fragile, breakable, powerless, temporary, lifeless, and useless. We all become what we worship. And our struggle with idolatry is not some like one-time thing either. We're uh, I might have had that issue in the past, but now I've, like, I've like won that battle and I'm just going to move on. John Calvin, what he said about idolatry in the human heart is true. He said, our hearts are idol factories. We're the ones that are going to continue to take out these things and, and put them out on the corners of our lives and orient our lives around it. Like we're going to do that on a regular basis. Uh, here's, here's an example from my life. Guys, this is just a, a couple weeks ago. So I'm so grateful how God's word is so timely. And I don't mean that like for you. I mean that for me. Because two weeks ago, uh, something in my life that I didn't even know had become an idol was, was shaken a little bit. And I had the worst night's sleep I've had in distant, I mean, in all my memories. I spent all night just tossing and turning. And even at points was praying for God to protect and to restore my idol this thing that I had begun to worship, that even God's promises, you know, that, that promise of bigger and better things was not enough to pull my affections away from this and to cause me to like get sleep that night. So I just tossed and turned, prayed for my idol, and in the morning finally came to my senses and realized that I don't need my situation fixed. What I need is to repent of my sin and reorient my worship. You know what my idol was that night? I shouldn't just say it was just that night. It had been an issue for a while. This is so stupid. I remember saying this to myself when I was in bed thinking like, this is so stupid. It was youth baseball. And I'm, I'm curious though, like, I mean, that's just me being real with you. Like, I'm curious for you, what is it in your life that if that thing was shaken, 
if this particular part of your life, like all of a sudden didn't go the way that you wanted it to, if that part of your world was shaken, you would be losing sleep tonight. And the promises and comfort of God would not be enough for you to calm your heart and to let you get back to sleep. Maybe for some, it's, it's the health of children. That's another one for me. Maybe for others, it's like the opinion of your boss and your position at work. When something gets rattled there, it just devastates your world. Or maybe it's going back to the dollar bill thing. Maybe it's the amount of money in your bank account. What, what is it for you that has become just this object of worship that like God is like sharing affections with this and something else? Because guys, this is reality. Like we naturally drift toward idol worship. It's, it's in our sin nature. Everybody puts their confidence in something. Even those who are throwing their taunts at us saying, where is your God? Everybody's putting their confidence and trust in something. The question is, what? What do you put your confidence in? So a psalm that began with lament and moved to comparison between God and idols and continues in that, now lands, though, with a call for, for confidence. Jump in with me to verse 9. And watch how the psalmist repeats himself, but he moves from the broader context to the more personal call for our lives. He says, Israel, in contrast to these idols, if people put their trust in them, they're these lifeless, useless idols that you worship them, you'll become like them. Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Verse 10, then, house of Aaron, he's moving now more narrow. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. And then he speaks to all of us individually. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You want to know the best way to get your eyes off of an idol? It's to find something better to look at. And he's trying to move your, idol, your eyes from these idols that can't see or hear or speak or feel, or deliver, and he's saying, let's put our eyes on something better, or someone, I should say, better, because our God sees, he hears, he speaks, he feels, he helps, and he shields, and more. I think, for me, verse 12 has been the most worshipful part of this entire psalm. It's these four words here, then, because not only does he see, and hear, and feel, and deliver, and act, but just this simple phrase here, that the Lord remembers us. If you are in a spot right now in life where you're asking the question, where is God? Can you just hear those four words? The Lord remembers us. That has just been such a delight to my soul the past couple of weeks. And just reminding myself that, that God, he doesn't forget. He doesn't need reminding. He doesn't need a to-do list to write stuff down in case he, like, one slips from his mind. Like, he doesn't need extra motivation. He doesn't need somebody looking over his shoulder to make sure that he actually delivers on what he promised. God doesn't need any of that. He's got the whole world in front of him, and he doesn't forget a thing. And even in the midst of life, as chaotic as it can be or as, as awful as it can be in the situation that you're walking through, he won't forget you. He doesn't. He remembers. 
Idols don't do that, but God does. Everyone trusts in something, but God is so much bigger and better than anything else that we can turn to. I want to go back to verse 3 just for a moment again. Because in the day and age that we live in, there's so much abuse of power that we can read a verse like that that says that our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. We can read that and you can take that one of two ways. You can see that as either a threat or a comfort. And in this day and age that we live in with so many people that get into positions of power and then only look out for themselves and actually use that power to hurt other people, the question begins to come up, if God has all that power, how will he use it? Will he, will that be a good thing for us? Will he use that for our good? Church, see the word shield there, circle that, and let the answer to that question, is God who is all-powerful, is that for our good? See that as yes, a resounding yes. And if you want just one example of that, let's go to the cross. God has all the power in the universe. He does whatever he pleases. And you know what's wild? If you go to Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says that it pleased the Lord to crush him. Same word. He does whatever he pleases. And you know what pleases the Lord? Well, one example is that it pleased him to crush his own son. And in that, what Jesus became for us is became this shield that then would protect us from rightful judgment of God. All the power in the universe, and that's what our God does. As there's no one like him. He's just different. Beautiful and different. And there's no one like him. And he is our shield. He is our help. He shields us from rightful judgment. And he will shield us as we walk through life. And he will shield us against all things until he takes us home to be with him forever. He is our help and our shield. He is able to deliver. He is able to protect. He sees. He hears. He feels. He remembers. He's beautiful. Life will give you a lot of reasons, maybe, to not trust God. Or at least the world around you is going to make a lot of arguments. Say, don't trust God. Don't trust God because of this or that. And they'll throw out their accusation. Well, where is God in this? I'm pleading with you. See the cross. See how God is different. Recognize the fact that everybody puts their trust in something. And to hear this call, trust in the Lord who is beautiful and who is different. who acts and delivers. And now watch this psalm come full circle. And I'm going to give you a tip here. Look for some repeated words, okay? Verse 12, the Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. And he will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great alike. He doesn't forget he remembers us all, small and great alike. And he blesses us all, small and great alike. 
May the Lord add to your numbers, both yours and your children's. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the human race. And it is not the dead who praise the Lord, nor any of those descending into the silence of death. But we will bless the Lord both now and forever. Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. I, I told you, be looking for some repeated words. There's a word in those six verses that's repeated six times. Did you see it? Did you see it? What was it? Bless or blessed. Six times in six verses, the word bless gets used. But one of the times that that word gets used, it's different than the others. And I don't mean like blessed versus blessed. I mean like where it comes from. Did you notice that? Five times there in a row, it says that the Lord will bless us. He'll bless us. He'll bless us. He'll bless us. And then did you notice the last one came from a different place? Somebody else is blessing somebody else. The first five times that word gets used, it's about God blessing us. And the last time it gets used, it's about us blessing the Lord. See, what happens here is that as God blesses us, we in turn receive that, and, and it, it brings up involuntary and totally deserved praise back to God. This is where this psalm comes full circle, and verses verse 1 and 18 serve as bookends for this whole text. Verse 1, it says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. This is about praising you and bringing glory to your name. And verse 18, and we will bless the Lord. We will bring glory to his name. This is all about the Lord's glory. And in between, we see why we give him glory. Because we give him glory not because he demands it, though he definitely could. We give him glory because he deserves it. When we gather together as a church and we sing these songs, we offer up our lives as living sacrifices. We're doing that in celebration, not because we are special, but because God, who we worship, is special. He's the Holy One. He's the one who's different. God is so much bigger and better than the things that we tend to worship. And today is a call for us to continue to, to move our affections from the lesser things of this world to the greatest thing we can ever think about, lay our eyes on, wrap our affections around, it's God. We aren't special. Nothing in this created world really is. But our hope isn't a God who is special. And that's the call of Psalm 115. I mentioned before that mantra for life Right, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. If I could give you a role model for that, I'd point you to John the Baptist. And I'm sharing this with you because this has been my prayer for our church for the past week. And I'm going to pray this over you here in just a second. There's this incredible moment in John's life because John knew that the sole reason that God had put him on this earth was to serve as a forerunner for Christ. Right? He knew that he was screwing up his job if he spent his life running out and just telling people, hey, look at me, look at me. He knew his job was to, as he was going into this world, point people to Christ who was coming. And so there's this really kind of almost comical moment 
because uh, John's disciples are keeping track of things, and as Jesus's popularity grows, uh, one of the things they begin to notice is that Jesus is baptizing as many people as John is, maybe even more. That kind of bothers them a bit. And they come up to John, and they bring up this problem to him. <laughs> What's around the problem? They say, hey, they're, they're baptizing more people than we are. And, and John's response is so beautiful. He must increase. I must decrease. Christian, like John the Baptist, we, we know what we're here for. The life that we have here and the purpose of it is not for us to run through this world telling people, hey, look at me, look at me. It's saying, look at Jesus. I am who I am because of his grace poured out in my life. And in all things, he must increase and I must decrease. That's to be the purpose of our lives. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, I know that in all things, in all things, you are working for our good. And in there, you're also, you're working for your glory. Those things are not at odds with each other. There's been times in my life I've struggled to see that. But God, I'm grateful for the times that you have just allowed me just to continue to, to be refreshed, to see like, no, no, you are continually pursuing your glory, and that is right, and laboring for my good. And I, I do, I trust you. And I know that that's the call that you put before of all of us today, that we would trust you, whether that be for the millionth time or for the first time, to trust you and to worship you alone because you deserve it. And so I do, I pray for our lives. I pray for this church. I pray for your people here to be a people defined by just the example of John the Baptist, constantly lifting you up and putting ourselves in our proper place as well. God, thank you for a glimpse of your glory and your beauty today. I pray that you'd be a bit bigger in our minds and we continue to grow as we continue to worship you and pursue you all the days of our lives. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.